We're reading from Amos chapter 2, verses 4 through 16. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Judah, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord, and have not kept his statutes. But their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell righteous for silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth, and turn aside the way of the afflicted, a man and his father go into the same girl, so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves beside every altar on garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God they drink of the wine of those who have been fined. Yes, it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years into the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. It is not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord, but you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves pressed down. Flight shall perish the swift, and the strong shall not retain its strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles a bow shall not stand, and he who is swift on foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life, and he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. Good morning. You know, it's funny because when we have things like Super Bowls or World Series or Emmys or Oscars, people always ask, are you going to cancel the service? Are you going to, you know, do this stuff because they're worried about the attendance and stuff? doesn't happen here at Regen ever. We'd never have to do that. But when there's a running event in the city, everyone's gone. The fitness of our church is incredible. It's very good. If you guys are interested in running, we have a running group that will run with you or do triathlons or they'll do anything with you that is physically exerting. They will do it with you. Ultra marathon, 100 mile, someone will do it with you here. It's all here. Midnight half dome, here. Like everything's here. So anyway, let us pray for them. Okay. <laughs> Father, we thank you for your word. And as we open this book of Amos, these prophetic words of Amos. Holy Spirit, would you speak to your church? We need you, not just for the information that we gain from your holy word, and not just to feel a little prick on our heart or that makes us feel different. We need you to change us so that we are in a more intimate, deeper relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple of weeks ago, we took a look at the surrounding nations of Israel and Judah, and so this morning we're going to take a look at Israel and Judah. And just a little recap, because that was a couple of weeks ago. Amos pointed out each of those other six Gentile nations' transgressions and their subsequent judgments. And those nations, they were pagan. They did not know Yahweh God, but that wasn't an excuse that did not preclude them from being morally accountable and being held responsible for the actions that they committed. 
And it wasn't about religion because Amos makes no mention at all about religion or theology in his judgment against them. Now, what was it actually about? And if you look back to those verses, you'll notice that it's about justice. And it's not justice in a legal sense. It's justice in a relational sense. That their actions proved that they weren't in a right relationship, in a good relationship with God, and that it also proved that their relationships were not right with other people. And so today, as we look at Judah and Israel, keep in mind that these people knew God. They knew Yahweh God, and who had His holy scriptures. People who will find they're not all that different from us. Right? They had this great, great material wealth, and they were immoral people. Now, how did they get this way? I think a big factor in how people get this way is their irreverence for God. Right? They did not fear God. King Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The psalmist wrote in Psalms chapter 111, verse 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have good understanding. Our world has made morality relative, placed greater value on economics and politics over a right relationship with God, and also has made God more to be like Santa Claus than the creator of the universe. And back in Amos' day, God used this simple man, a shepherd, a dresser of sycamore figs, to deliver a message that was highly disliked because Amos was speaking to them about their transgressions. Well, how about us? We can hear all about the people in the past in this historical period, but what about us? Is Amos speaking to us about our transgressions? And I believe he is because God's word is alive. And God's word speaks to us today. And none of us are sinless. And since we as sinners are in churches and we are in a nation, our churches and nation have also transgressed against God and we are held accountable to those things. Now as a pastor, I listen to a lot of people throughout the week, throughout the month. I, I listen to a lot of people. And in fact, that's probably the thing I do most in my role in this ministry is I listen to people. One thing that I know for sure, and I'm generally speaking here, is that people have their moral compasses just totally out of whack. And there's no wonder why the world accuses the church of hypocrisy because we have hypocrites in the church. Our ability to speak morality into the world has been severely compromised because of our own hypocrisy. How can we address the transgressions of the surrounding community without taking a look at our own transgressions? So we have to take this really good look in the mirror, and this is what Amos does for us. He addresses God's own, right? Judah and Israel. He puts this big mirror in front of them. People who had God's word but they did not obediently follow God's word. And I'm not talking about the legalistic way of following God's word, but following that desires a relationship with God, knowing that God's word leads to a deepening of that relationship. So here we are. We have God's word, but are we obediently following it? And it's not that those who don't have God's word aren't held accountable. 
Right, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and 25, and Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 16, where Paul wrote that every person is made in the image of God, and we each have a conscience, we each have a morality created within each one of us by God. And so in today's verses, we read about people who not only were made in the image of God, and they were given a conscience and a morality by God, but they were also given God's word and still walked away from God. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verse 48, Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So what does God's word have for us this morning? Verse 4, Amos chapter 2. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And this is why. Because they have rejected the law of the Lord. Now, we spoke about this a couple of weeks ago when they're mentioning for three transgressions and for four. That does not mean that God is like marking them off of one, two, three, that's it. Right? It's the same thing as when the disciple asked Jesus, how many times shall I forgive a sin? Seventy times seven. It's not 490 times. And then that's it, which I did have a friend mark that. He had people on his little ledger. He, kind of a weird dude. He would mark the things. He was like, hey, man, if you wrong me 490 times, that's it. I was like, that's fine. Let's just call it now. We're done now. How about that? It's talking about sin after sin after sin, that it's done over and over and over and over again, that it's enough is enough. And so when we look at the word law here, when we look at the word law in verse 4, our Western mindset tends to gravitate towards that which is legislative, right? That which is punitive. There are these punitive types of thoughts that go in our head, things associated with our legal system. And so, yes, the word law, which is Torah in Hebrew, it does have those types of thoughts attached to it. But that's not the primary definition of the Hebrew word Torah. The word law here is primarily defined as instruction or direction. This is more about a relationship, such as the relationship between a parent and a child or a teacher and a student. It's about the instruction, the direction, where the parent instructs, directs their child out of love so that their relationship with one another is good and it's right. So that the relationship that that child has with other people around them is good and right. So when we think of the word law, we don't attach that type of intimacy to it, do we? Because we're just thinking of this very distant thing where there's that judge over there. We don't know who that judge is. They just know the law and they deliver a verdict to us based off of if we're guilty or not guilty. But in the Hebrew mindset, in the Eastern mindset, this is not so. It's a relationship that has intimacy attached to it. So when Judah rejected the law of the Lord, it wasn't just simply rejecting legislation. It was rejecting a parent's loving instruction, direction. It was rejecting that relationship. Which is why there's this other part in verse 4. And have not kept their statutes. So you see, yes, the law contains statutes. Laws enacted by legislature. But you notice that this is a separate statement from rejecting the law. Rejecting the law was more about rejecting the relationship. And then on top of that, they did not keep God's statutes. Now, how did this happen? I believe it starts inside of us. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7 tells us about someone who is inwardly 
calculating. Inwardly calculating. That such a person says, eat and drink, but his heart is not with you. See, Judah had the law of God, the relationship as well as the statutes, and they were kind of doing these things on an outwardly basis, but inwardly they were going in a different direction. So outwardly things look all churchy, you know, things look all Jewishy, I guess. And their hearts internally weren't with God. And perhaps that describes some in the church today. Because some of us talk a good talk. And we look Christian-y on the outside. But the heart, one's will, is not with God. And perhaps you're familiar with the person at your job, or maybe it's you, that has a Bible verse as your screensaver. Right? And, and it just kind of flashes there, and sometimes it's the wavy thing or whatever. And you have a Bible on your desk with some other Christian books, and you have some worship music kind of playing in the background of your office or your cubicle, and you got the Son of God poster, which I haven't seen that movie yet, but I'm planning on doing. And everyone can identify you as a Christian on the outside. Or maybe it's the person with a fish decal on their car, Christian bumper stickers or that N-O-W thing, whatever that thing is, that thing. I thought it was like a wrestler or something until I looked closer. Oh, it's not a wrestler. Or a cross hanging from your rear view mirror or something. Or maybe it's your house and your house has the big old Bible on the coffee table. Or a slew of Christian books on the bookshelf, right? Or Thomas Kincaid artwork on your walls or whatever. <laughs> and nothing wrong with those things except for Kincaid's a little bit debatable. But everything else, everything else. As long as those things are in your heart more than they are in your house, your car, or your place of work. See, God doesn't need us to be billboards to market Him. He doesn't need us to put His brand out there. We don't need to be marketing Jesus. He's concerned with whether conforming into the image of Jesus with our character, with our entire being, is actually happening. Whether our lives are transformed because of the presence of God in our lives, that our relationship with Him is growing and it's thriving. And just like children who repeatedly disobey and rebel against their parents, enough's enough. Enough's enough. Continuing on with verse 4, but their lies have led them astray. Their lies have led them astray. It was their willful disobedience. They had the loving instructions of God. They had the truths of God. But they deliberately turned away from following those truths. And they followed their own lies. They fooled themselves. They talked themselves into it. They worked themselves into walking away from God. Those after which their fathers walked. Just like the generation before them. Right? No one can accuse God of impatience. This was generation after generation after generation of people walking in disobedience. So you see how significant our influence is to future generations because we can pass on to them truths that lead them to a closer relationship with God or we can influence them to stray from God. So how are we modeling our relationship to God to future generations? Is it just this shallow relationship where there's just a lot of exterior show, but internally not much? Or do the future generations see a life transforming right before their eyes? 
Someone who is becoming more and more like Jesus right before their eyes because we do impact future generations. Even if you're absent from them. Because your absence, if it is not positively influencing them, there's something else out there waiting for them to negatively influence them. And if you just look at our neighborhood and our community at that demographic, things aren't good. Chances aren't very good that they're going to make it. I'm excited for what is developing in our neighborhood with the youth in particular because we've been praying for these youth across the street for a couple of years now. And I don't know, if you guys hang out here enough, just don't hang out too long right out front because you'll get high. Okay? Because we have these like 20, 30 kids from the local high schools here. Every day they're just smoking pot right here in the community center and in the parking lot. They've just been hanging out. And so we've committed as a church to pray for them. Not to call the cops, not to tell them to go away, not to do anything like that, to pray for them. In fact, a few weeks ago, I was meeting with one of the counselors at the high school there and showing him the facility because their place is getting renovated and they need a place to have PE classes and for their basketball team. I said, you can use our gym. And so they came over and they took a look at it. And he came out and he saw some of their students and they were smoking weed. And he was like, what are you guys doing here? This is a church. Get out of here. And so... I didn't want to say anything in front of them, so I pulled them aside and I said, you know what, we actually want them here. You don't have to tell them to go away. We, we actually want them here. And he was like, oh, oh. I was like, yeah, just, it's all right. So uh, a few weeks ago, God totally opened these doors that the principals of Met West High School and Dewey High School, which Dewey High School is the continuation high school of Oakland Unified School District. That is the last stop before they get booted out of the system and say, complete your GEDs on your own. Their principals have essentially invited us open-handed, do whatever you want to do with our students. Two years of prayer. It's awesome. And so we're still talking about how this is going to work, but so far we've kind of established this shared resources and that we're going to bring their students in to do some community development projects and we're going to start this apprentice-type relationship with those in the community to hook them up with business owners and things like that so those kids have these internships and stuff like that. So we're still praying about what else is going to happen with this relationship and so we ask for your prayers. We need your prayers. And if any of you want to invest into that future generation. Join us. Please come talk to me. I've committed to being there twice a month. And if you have more time than that, please give it. If you have less than time than that, give that. Well, let's do that so that we can share with them the truth instead of the lies that they are buying into because that's what caught Judah. They started believing their own lies. And it caused some serious problems, just like in our world where truth has been severely compromised by the lies of the world. Paul warned Timothy as he warns us of things to come. 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And this is what I wanted to point out. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. 
Back to Amos, verse 5. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. A broken relationship with God leads to destruction. And that's where it leads. And it's not simply punitive because of a legislative thing, but primarily because the relationship has been broken. See, Judah had the relationship, and they had the statutes, but it was obvious how little that really meant by the conduct of their lives. Let's look at verse 6, see how they viewed social justice. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. These are people who claim to know God. They sold the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Money, bribery, greed, corruption. It all took place with these people. One interpretation of this kind of sandal thing happening is someone needed a pair of sandals, couldn't afford them, needed to borrow money for a pair of sandals, but after borrowing the money, the creditor wanted to collect the debt before the debtor could repay, and so the needy person was sold into slavery to pay off this debt. That's one interpretation. Another way that this could be interpreted, which is what I think is the more probable way, because paying off a pair of sandals, I think, isn't that big of a deal. So I think this is the more probable way. It's in the context within a real estate transaction. See, real estate transactions were completed with the symbolic exchange of sandals between the buyer and the seller. See, they didn't have all the real estate documentation that we have nowadays. You know, you put an offer on a house, it's like this thick, right? It's like, and you go through escrow, and you do all the, all the stuff you go through. It's like the three trees die for every transaction, okay? And so it wasn't like that back then. Back then, they exchanged sandals. So perhaps someone in need got behind on some payments. And rather than working something out with that needy person, the debtor was sold into slavery to pay off the debt of that much bigger transaction. Whatever it was. Whatever our interpretation is with this sandal. Amos was clearly getting across that those who professed to know God were not acting like they knew God. The needy weren't helped. The needy were dealt with harshly and their situation lacked compassion and mercy. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth. Can you picture this? Just kind of close your eyes and picture this. Because when you're walking and you see dust on the ground, what do you do? Step on it. You don't think about it. You're like, ooh, dust. Ugh. You just go. Just walk. Right? And so you don't even think about it. And so that's what they did with the poor. They didn't even step around them. They stepped on them. And they went further than just ignoring them. Because you can just ignore somebody and just walk on by. They took notice and they trampled the head of the poor into the dust. These are the people who claim to know God. And they were heartless. Social justice? Not these guys. There was none. They didn't value people. The needy? Get behind on some payments. You weren't helped. You were sold into slavery. People were looking out for themselves without regard of those in need. And if you were in need, step on you. And so the rich got richer, the poor got poorer. Any of this sound familiar? 
Those in Judah and Israel could easily judge the nations around them, but they had some serious problems of their own. Does that sound familiar? We're so preoccupied with pointing out the wrongs of the world when there are a slew of wrongs right here in our own backyard. And we've got plenty to change for the better right here than to go poking our noses in the rest of the world's problems. And so, of course, we are to point out the injustice wherever it is, even if it's in other parts of the world. But let's be sure that we're taking a really good look at ourselves. Verse 7, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profane. Sexual immorality. You take a look at those who once claimed to know God, but they were led astray by their own lies. Close behind it comes social injustice, and right behind that is immorality. Oftentimes, sexual immorality. Verse 8, they lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. They defile the house of God. And so here's a picture of corruption. Father and son having sex with the temple prostitutes, the same ones. And the garments of the needy that the people pledged so that they wouldn't be sold into slavery. It was kind of like this, please don't, I don't have money, but I have this. This is worth something. Can you take this? And so those people were being extorted. And when these priests or when these religious people and their sons, they took this stuff, it wasn't like for safekeeping and saying like, yeah, this is collateral for their payment. Let's just sleep on this stuff. Let's just defile this stuff because we were just with the prostitute. Well, let's just sleep here. And so they just went ahead and slept on these kind of garments as their beds, knowing that those people are needy. And who knows if it was the very coat off of their back and they were cold and they needed to be clothed. But no, we want the collateral because you're behind on your debt payment. Pledge that here. Oh, let's use this as a bed. So someone who was a judge who knew God's law took bribes and shared the bribes with his son or sons and a man and his father go into the same girl. And perhaps this was bribery. Or it was just a night on the town because a father and son wanted to go out indulging the flesh with money taken from bribery, exploitation, corruption. Any corruption happening in our world today? Is what Amos wrote in 8th century B.C. relevant to our world today? Same stuff's happening. And when fines were levied, the judge would take possession of the fines. Now, fines weren't always paid in money. Right? Currency wasn't always readily available like it is today. Sometimes things of value were exchanged instead of money, such as wine. They drink the wine of those who have been fined. You see, the wine wasn't the judges. Right? Just like the money, that the, the fine that they had paid, it wasn't for them. It was for the civic organization. right? It was for the government. It wasn't for them. But they take the actual wine and they drink it themselves. Verse 9, Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you forty years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. The relationship we have with God is all through His grace. It's all because of His grace. His grace 
deliver the Israelites from their enemies, right? From slavery in Egypt. His grace saved them from 40 years in the wilderness. His grace provided for them and showed them how a right relationship with God and one another was possible. His grace spoke to the people directly through the prophets and other people God used. Where is the grace of God in your life this morning? What dark places has God delivered you from? And what do you need God to deliver you from right now? How has He provided for you? Or maybe you need that provision right now. And the question to ask is, God speaking to you this morning? Not through me. Do you and Him have a relationship going on to where He is speaking to you? Is He present in your life? And I believe the transgressions of Judah and Israel are really similar to the church today. And there is a warning issued to us by Amos. Will we heed this warning? So what's this warning? Well, we possess the truth. We possess the Word of God. But how are we following it? Does the way we think, act, live, reflect that we indeed value our relationship with God? And I believe our transgressions are greater than those who don't have a relationship with God because our transgressions include a lack of gratitude to God, whom we claim to have a relationship with. Have we received the grace of God in vain? where we have so much. We have all this material possession. So much support to live godly and righteous lives. You aren't persecuted to meet here this morning. But we choose to walk away from God rather than walking with and toward God. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself. Nor shall he who rides the horse save his life, and he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. God intercedes because enough is enough. Sin upon sin upon sin, and to save us from our destructive ways that would lead us to everlasting separation from Him, He has to step in like this. There's a divine intervention to cleanse and to refine, to separate those with impure hearts from those who have a real relationship with Him. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. Have you done a spiritual exam lately? Or just like a spiritual checkup? Just a checkup with the great physician? Because we need to check our spiritual health. You go to the doctor once a year for those annual checkups, right? To go to Dr. Jesus, and if you come back with this clean bill of spiritual health, good. Keep at it. You probably have a good, solid sense of your identity 
in Jesus, and you are anchored in the fact that you are God's beloved child, you are fully accepted as you are. It's not your false self that is accepted, but your true self. And from that, you probably have good, sustaining spiritual practices that help you stay in that place of complete acceptance from God. That's if you have a good, clean bill of spiritual health. And so you have these practices in your life, such as prayer or study or solitude or silence or meditation or a variety of other spiritual practices that help you stay spiritually healthy, just like to stay physically healthy, diet, exercise, eating right, supplements, all this kind of stuff. But if the results aren't so good, there's something that needs to happen if you want to be spiritually healthy. And it's not spiritual works like prayer, solitude, and all this other stuff that I listed as spiritual disciplines. That's not going to get that for you. I think it's this. You need to know that you are wholly, completely loved by God. You need to know that. You need to know the reality of God's grace and love for you before you do any of that stuff. Before you start on any road of wellness, you have to know your condition, right? Say, for example, if you have a heart problem, exercise may be the worst thing for you at that time. You don't have heart health to help you exercise. And so there's a likelihood that you can't just start exercising even though that's a good thing for you because that may actually do more damage to your unhealthy heart than help it. And so it is with any other problem. The first thing you do is you do nothing. You don't do anything. And then you talk to your health care provider. You communicate with your health care provider. It's the same thing spiritually. We talk to our physician, our great physician. Right? And you have to have knowledge of reality of your real condition. You have to see how things really are and address those real needs. The problem with Judah and Israel weren't a lack of prayer. It wasn't a lack of study. It wasn't a lack of religious practices. It wasn't a lack of giving. It wasn't a lack of serving. It wasn't any of that religious stuff. The problem was that those religious acts were done absent of God. He wasn't there. They did it on their own. They lied to themselves. Those religious things could be done without God. Do you realize that our church can do all this religious stuff without God? We could. See, we need to examine ourselves to see whether we are of the faith to test ourselves to see if Jesus Christ is indeed in us. Is who you are an accurate reflection of Jesus in your life? It's not about possessing religious information here or about doing religious things. How do we gain knowledge of the reality of Jesus in our life? Are you in the fight for social justice? Are you in the fight for moral purity? Are you in the fight for spiritual health? Is your faith in Jesus real? See, we need to study our Judeo-Christian church history. And I've met so many people that are so focused on the future and they don't regard the spiritual heritage as much as they could, which is a real detriment because if we don't recognize and learn from our mistakes in the past, we're destined to repeat them. 
I'm only concerned for the future, right? The past is the past. I just want to move forward. Well, you know what? If you really think that way, get ready to make mistakes from the past. You know, we have a hard enough time repeating mistakes from history even when we don't know it, right? But your ignorance of history does not help things. And so you look at the followers of God in Amos' day. You look at the history of the Christian church. You look at the similarities between the church today and what we know of church history. It's grim. We're doing the same stuff. What does the church focus on itself today? And it's not mostly spiritual matters. And if people say it is, in reality, often it's not. It's just kind of the exterior talk. It's just the Christianese going on. They say things are spiritual, but really they are focused on economics or politics. Right? When we look at spiritual revivals, they did not have to do with economics or politics. They were spiritual works. But when the church gets derailed from spiritual matters into economic or political matters, we move away from social justice, moral purity, spiritual health. When we move away from spiritual matters, we open ourselves up to corruption and judgment. What happened to Israel? Let's look at history. The Syrian Empire comes in, led by Tiglath-Pileser III. They conquer Israel. They subjugated the Israelites to their rule. And then in verses 13 through 16 of Amos, it all came true. Amos prophesied this, it came true. The Assyrian army was so dominant, it's just not even a contest. It's exactly as Amos prophesied. But how did this come about? It wasn't because they weren't economically prosperous, because they were. They had all the money in the world. It wasn't because they were politically impotent. I mean, they were really politically powerful in this region. It was because spiritually they were weak. Social justice, man, that's for someone else to take care of. Moral purity, man, what's that? Everything's relative. Morality's relative. What's good for you is good for you. What's good for me is good for me. Let's just kind of get along. Spiritual health? Eh, of course we're spiritually healthy. I mean, take a look at us. We've got everything we need. We've got an awesome temple. We've got all the money that we need to do whatever we want to do. We're prosperous. I mean, look at things. Things are growing. Our ministries are growing. Our outreaches are growing. Just look at us. How can we not be spiritually healthy if we have all this stuff? Well, they weren't. They weren't. Their relationship with God was weak. And they had the truth of God's word, but they weren't obedient to it. It doesn't take much of a history study of the church to see the rise and fall of church movements. It's the same thing with great empires. You look at great empires of the world and you can trace this. They all have something in common. Pride. Pride. They lacked humility. Do we recognize the mercy of God in our lives? The kindness of God to us? And perhaps this study will help us understand the vision of our church which is this, Micah 6.8, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. See, the destiny of our church is related to social justice, moral purity, and spiritual health. Justice, kindness, mercy, humility, all essential elements to a spiritually healthy church. Our mission is to make disciples of Jesus, but that cannot be done 
if justice is not part of the vision. It can't be done. It can't be done if kindness, mercy is not part of the vision. It can't be done if humility is not part of the vision. Justice, not in a legislative sense, but justice in a relational sense, where we are activists for right relationships with God and with one another. Kindness and mercy in how we deal with people. Humility in knowing who we really are in the eyes of God. God is not looking at our nation or our church's relationships to Him based off of our economic prosperity or our political ideologies. He is looking at how we address social justice, moral purity, and spiritual health. You see how the book of Amos is so relevant to us today. How is the Word of God speaking to you this morning? What do you need to pray about? And what reality do you need revealed to you so that you can act upon it. We all have things to help deepen our relationship with God and with one another. What are those things? And don't go too long without addressing how social justice, moral purity, and spiritual health are actively pursued in your life. We'll be held accountable for those things because those things are essential to a Christian life. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. And I ask God that we wouldn't walk out just with new information or just feel a little twinge of something going on. But what are you calling us to in regards to social justice and moral purity and our own spiritual health? Please give us the courage to take a step of faith to address those things in our life. In Jesus' name, amen.